Welcome back to Running Deep. Take a listen to our women's event that we had this last spring as we wrapped up our study in Genesis. Ladies, I'm so excited that you are here with me tonight. Um, we have been working so hard at this study, but I also know that a lot of you haven't done this study, and that is totally okay. You are welcome to be here, and I'm excited that you're here because you'll get something out of tonight. So we have been, can you believe it, if you've been in both the Genesis studies, we've been studying Genesis for about seven months, which is crazy to me. I can't believe that this is the last week of our Genesis study, um, honestly. Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you're not already there, to Genesis 48. If you were like me, and you're kind of going up through Genesis, it brings up some emotions as you're thinking of all those stories and what God has taught you, right? And it should, God's word should awaken our soul and awaken a love for him. Anytime we spend time in God's word, it's spending time with him and he changes us through his word. So that's a good thing that you're like, wow, we have learned a lot. We've spent a lot of time in God's word the last seven months. And Genesis is such a foundational book for our study of the Bible. If you don't understand Genesis, it's hard to understand the rest of the Bible. And so this is such a great foundational study to start with. And this book actually spans 2,300 years. That's a lot of time and generations. And it tells the beginnings and the ends of a lot of family lines, the rise and fall of man. But yet through it all, God is faithful and he shows himself to be never changing. And so we see that in Genesis 48, where we pick up, we're at kind of a sad scene where we pick up in Genesis 48. And this is Jacob is on his deathbed. He's been living in Egypt already for about 17 years, and he's on his deathbed. And Joseph comes with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob reaches out. Yeah, I know, Kelly, 2,300 years. I didn't believe that either, but I'm like, man, that's a lot of generations. Jacob reaches out to, to both the children, and he wants to give them the firstborn rights. Now, in those days when someone was to be given like the firstborn inheritance, that would be a double inheritance of what you would normally receive. And Jacob is reaching out to give this to not Reuben, who it should have gone to, not Simeon or Levi or Judah, but he's giving this to Ephraim and Manasseh, which is so important to look at. And it's Joseph. It's Joseph's sons. He loves Joseph, and he's giving this firstborn inheritance to Ephraim and Manasseh. And of course, as he's going to reach out, instead of reaching his right hand to the oldest son, he reaches over, remember that, to Ephraim and gives Ephraim the right-handed blessing. And he says this over them. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. 
in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. God's going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh and he makes it clear. But why is it important for him to use God's name three times in that short blessing? Because Ephraim and Manasseh were born in Egypt. They were raised by an Egyptian mother and they needed a reminder that it was God who was going to do this. It wasn't any of the Egyptian gods. It wasn't themselves that was going to do it. It was God himself that's going to do it. So that beautiful picture of him passing down the, to the next generation, the belief that God is going to be the one who actually does this. And Jacob refers to God in that. And he also refers to God earlier in this chapter. If you look at verse 3 in chapter 48, he says this. God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Israel refers to God as God Almighty, El Shaddai. This is a name for God that shows up several times in Genesis. We see it multiple times. And El is a word to describe God, but it's always paired with something else. It's paired with a distinctive of who God is. So do you remember when we studied Hagar? Hagar called God El Roy, the God who sees, right? So here, Jacob is referring to God as El Shaddai. And this is so beautiful, this language, because scholars think that this word Shaddai is from the word Shad, which actually means breast. And I love that in a women's event, we can actually talk about this, okay? Um, God is referred in many areas of the Bible to have masculine masculine characteristics. But this is a time where it's beautifully portrayed in a more feminine characteristic that God, just, just picture this with me, that God tenderly provides for his people like a woman breastfeeding her child. How beautiful is that? That when a baby's nursing, that's all that baby needs for life. They don't need anything else but the breast, right? When they're newborn, that's all they need. And that's all we need. God, El Shaddai, he so tenderly provides for his people. He's sovereign over them. He's almighty provider, almighty God. And sometimes we can forget that we are also made in the image of God. And so everything that is womanly about us is found in God. The tenderness of God is shown in the women, right? So God's tenderness, his way of caring for people is expressed through women. And God is such a good God that he has creatively made men and women differently, but he embodies all of those characteristics. 
He's mighty, he's powerful, he's a warrior, yes, but he's also tender and loving and nurturing. And so we embody those characteristics of God. God is a mighty God and he so tenderly provides and sovereignly provides for everything we need, just like a mother nursing her baby. And the beautiful picture, and I'm just drawing out this analogy because it's so beautiful to me that when a baby's nursing, so often the baby is covered up, right? That God covers us up and the baby's in a dark place sometimes, right? And that's all the baby knows. I'm in the dark, but it's getting what it needs most. And so often we can feel like we are in the darkest of days, but we're getting exactly what we need. What we need most is God himself. And that's so comforting for us to remember, especially in these days when we feel like, I don't know what's going on. We're getting what we need most and we can trust God who is El Shaddai, Almighty God, the God who sovereignly provides for our every need. So after Israel talks to Joseph and he talks to Ephraim and Manasseh, he turns back to Joseph and he says these words, Behold, I'm about to die, but God... El Shaddai will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, don't forget, this is the same guy who's wavered back and forth, right? He's wavered from Jacob to Israel, Israel to Jacob so many times. And he's ending his life with this solid hope in the God Almighty that he's going to be with his son, Joseph, and he's going to bring them back to the promised land. So we end chapter 48, and honestly, I think that would be like the most powerful like last words you could say to anybody, but he doesn't end there. He keeps going, and he goes on. He says, okay, I want all of my sons to come in now, and he speaks a prophecy over each and every son in their family line. So you're going to see um, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and those prophecies, they reflect their evil actions that happened earlier on in Genesis. But then we get to Judah, and if you did your study this week, you were able to dig in some to this. Remember, when Judah is mentioned in the Bible, your ears should perk up. This is the family line of Jesus himself. So our ears should perk up, our eyes should open, we should re read with that perspective. So it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah is a lion's cub. I thought this was interesting. He calls him a cub, which is fun because we call Judah our Judah cub. But what comes from cub? A cub grows into a lion, and that's the lion of Judah. That's Jesus. And then it goes on to say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute come to him. David comes from Judah's family, and David's rule and reign will continue. And through David, years and years later, we see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, come. But he didn't come like a king. He came wrapped in swaddling clothes and he grew and he came riding into Jerusalem. And we saw this a couple weeks ago as we studied on Palm Sunday. He comes riding in on a foal 
And this is prophetic words. It says this. It says in later on, it says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to choice vine. How crazy is that? That Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then it says, He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. Jesus himself is going to come back. And he's going to come back as a ruling and reigning king. And Revelation talks about he's coming back and his robe will be white and will be dipped in blood. Because he has paid the price with the blood on the cross. So... After Judah's prophecy, this beautiful prophecy, and I feel like I could say so much more about it. I love the language there, but we got to keep moving. He goes into all the rest of his sons, and we also see Joseph. We studied this. We saw Joseph's prophecy, and um, Joseph is a picture of Christ, right? Joseph is a picture of an unwavering person whose characteristics are just like Jesus, our unwavering Savior. Joseph was ridiculed. He was assaulted. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed by his own, just like Jesus himself. And he was sent ahead to save his family, just like Jesus. But when you look at all of these prophecies, the thing that it should point you to is that it must remind us that Jesus is in the Old Testament. And I so hope that you get this when you read Genesis, that the New Testament comes to life even more now. When you open your Bible and you're able to read the book of Hebrews with a better understanding because you studied the foundational truths in the Old Testament, that's what it should show you, that Jesus is in the Old Testament and we cannot understand the New Testament apart from knowing the Old Testament. So we finish chapter 49 and Jacob passes away. He dies and he's buried in the promised land and he's buried next to all of these greats. Imagine going to visit this cemetery. I, I can't imagine it's not an actual cemetery, but the field that they were buried in. He's buried next to Abraham next to Sarah, next to Isaac, Rebecca, and Leah. That is an incredible place with a lot of godly people buried there. And chapter 50 starts off with tears, with weeping, with lamenting. And I just want to take a quick side note before we go on to mention... um, We've seen a lot in Genesis, a lot of tears, especially through Joseph. And I know Jen kind of poked fun at it in some of her videos, if you've been watching those videos, that he weeps and he cries and he mourns. But it's okay. It's okay to weep and it's okay to mourn. And in the church and in our society, sometimes... We can move quickly on or when we mourn or lament, it can be looked down on because it's, hey, you, 
you know where they're at and we can have hope and all of this language of just kind of move on but it's okay and I I honestly think that it's a God honoring high view of the image of God to spend time mourning for a person and it gives God the glory but in first Thessalonians 4 it says that we don't grieve without hope we do have hope but we can still grieve so that's just a side note that I noticed throughout Genesis and I couldn't help but mention it here because I know that some of you ladies even right now are struggling with some deep grief from losing lost loved ones and it's okay to mourn and to grieve it is God honoring to give them the honor so Joseph mourns he grieves his father he buries his father and he comes back to Egypt and when he comes back his brothers are afraid his brothers are scared because they think that Joseph has just been nice to them this whole time for how many years 17 years he's been nice to them because of their father and so they come and they say are you gonna punish us now for our actions and Joseph weeps how hurtful would that be to have your own brothers who you have forgiven come and ask you are you gonna pay us back for our actions and these next two verses are so beautiful and it's where we're going to spend the last portion in these last two verses. And if you're doing something else right now, if you're busy doing the dishes, just stop. If there's anything I want you to hear tonight, it's these next five, ten minutes. So just stop and listen because it is so beautiful. Chapter 50, verse 19 to 20 says this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. If we just stop and think about the person who's saying this, this is Joseph. He's had such a hard life. He has spent so much time in hardship. This is one of those people where today you would look at and you would be like, oh my word, they can't get ahead. He was sold into slavery. He was left by his brothers. He was put into prison for who knows how long. There's a portion of the Bible that just says, and two years later. Like, we don't even know what happened in jail for those two years. He's had a hard life. And yet he can look his brother straight in the eye and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph knows God Almighty. He knows El Shaddai and he knows that he's in control. Even in chapter 45, Genesis 45 5 says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph is telling his brothers, God sent me here, not you. It wasn't you that sent me. God sent him. But why would God send Joseph to Egypt? To preserve the lives of the Israelites from dying of starvation, right? And it was God's sovereign hand 
to work through all of this evil. He planned this in Joseph's life for his glory, right? We all have a right view of our circumstances only when we have a right view of ourselves because God is God and we are not. I'm going to say that again. We will have a right view of our circumstances if we have a right view of ourselves because God is God and we are not. We need to hear this so much, right? Because right now, our life is out of control, which we thought we had control. It was just kind of a facade, right? But coronavirus is wreaking havoc on our world. Our life is changing daily from different things that we can't do anymore or we can't see our loved ones or we can't go to work, our kids can't go to school. But God isn't surprised by this. He's working in this. And in fact, he's not just working in it like, well, I got to work with what I have. He planned it. He planned this night, tonight, to be exactly this way. And he is working in our midst. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is so good right here. And it took me so long to understand this because this is a, a very popular verse, right? But... What's the good that Paul's talking about here? Is it like a good, comfortable, easy, healthy life? No, it's for our lives to be transformed into the image of God. So when something's transformed, it has to be changed. It's a lot of hard work to get it to be transformed. So I remember a couple years ago, if you've lived in the Cedar Valley for at least two years, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. University Avenue, the roundabouts. Do you remember when they were working on that? And (laughs) it was crazy. It was terrible. And one time, one of our many trips to Aldi's, Naomi was in the backseat and she was much smaller. And she said, Mommy, why are they wrecking the road? And I looked back and I said, well, honey... They have to wreck it before they fix it. They have to tear it apart before they make it better. And it just hit me. It hit me like a rock. I was like, oh my goodness. How many times in my life does God have to tear things apart? He has to upheave my life in order to transform me to be more like Jesus. I have to be wrecked before I can be made more like Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says something very similar. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this beautiful story of Genesis is that Joseph was sent to Egypt by God. He was sent to Egypt by God 
so that his people wouldn't starve and die. But also, he was sent to Egypt not only so that his people wouldn't starve and die, but if you keep reading, which I would encourage you to, keep going in Exodus, God sent Joseph to Egypt so that his people would be sent into captivity so that God could save them out of captivity, which sounds so strange, but it, it's for a purpose because God wanted to show his people in all the land who he is, that he's God and that he gets all the glory. His name was made known from the release of the slaves. So we keep going and we look at how the, the Israelites were released from captivity. But let's back up. How does this end? It ends with Joseph's death. He says, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So how do we tie this all together with a book of beginnings ending with a death, with an end, a book of beginnings ending with an end? I think we need to look at Psalm 90. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 90. This psalm was written by the same author. It was also written by Moses. Psalm 90 verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. There's generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, creation, or ever you had been formed, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is everlasting. He's never changing. He is the beginning and he's the ending. He's our alpha and our omega. He says, I will. And he also says, it is finished. He's the yes and the amen. I could go on and on and on. God is the beginning and he's the end because he is outside of time, right? God is outside of time. He is sovereign over all. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is our El Shaddai. So nothing takes him by surprise. Coronavirus does not take God by surprise. He is at work. And so we look at the end again of this verse 2. What does it say? You are God, just like Joseph asked this such great question to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? We all need to ask ourselves that question tonight. Do I think I'm in the place of God? Because remember, our view of our circumstances will only be aligned if we have a correct view of ourselves. Am I in the place of God? God is God and we are not. So you see the same hand that led Joseph into slavery. He sent his own son to the earth. You see the same hand of God who put Joseph through all of these trials and sending him to Egypt 
is the same hand that sent Jesus to the cross. And what happened on the cross is the ultimate picture of how God can take something so evil, so terrible, and plan it for the greatest good of our life. So that same mighty hand that led Joseph into slavery and led the Israelites out of captivity, he's the same El Shaddai that is leading us tonight. And this fact that God is a never-changing, all-powerful God is the characteristic that has taught me so much in this study over and over I just rest in the fact that God is never changing. When our world seems to be changing, God doesn't. And we can trust his good, sovereign hand. No matter what's happening in our life right now, we can trust that God is at work. And we might not see the end of the story right now. And we might not ever get to see the full picture of what God's doing. But we can trust him. And we can trust his faithfulness. And remember, he's El Shaddai. He gives us exactly what we need. 